Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is out today with us as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us in Christine Stead, Commentary Magazine contributing editor, podcast host, bon vivant, man around town, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. So, Eli, um, there's a lot of action in front, bipartisan ferment, but actual bipartisanship in this supposedly torturously polarized society uh, when it comes to uh, the American support for the Ukrainian effort to stave off the Russian bear. Uh, So we now have in excess of $50 billion, I believe, that is now going from the United States to Ukraine. Uh, and, um, what do you, what do you make of the fact that the Republicans have so far been relatively deaf to this kind of siren song of the trad con Nat con Tucker con idea that we should be spending that money at home. And why are we, you know, what global, what globalist madness is this that we're, dedicating all of our resources to Ukraine. A conversation, by the way, that I think is probably going on very heavily at the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference that is now taking place in Budapest. That's right. Oh, I did see some stuff on that. Yeah. Yeah, they're in Budapest <laughs> and they're not letting any press in. So, oh. uh, yeah. So that's really the uh, the manifold ironies of the of the, you know, the great new love of the Tradcon right, which is, you know, Hungary and my dear old friend, and I mean that literally, he is a dear friend, my dear friend Rod Dreher, you know, basically going on Twitter and saying that what he really wants is a nice king. He's had it, he'd like a king. And that king, I believe, Noah, wasn't it you Wait, discovered? Hold on, hold on. Yes. Sorry. I've read I read something this morning. That was a quote from Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, okay. I'm, so we're dropping it. I'm not going to say that. Oh, unless he quoted it, meaning it. That is, he said he wants a king who believes in geometry and uh, and and literature. But I mean, that could be a supportive quote. Confederacy dances being Louisiana and Rodriguez's favorite book, which I happen to know. We've gone on a wild tangent. Eli, let's get back to the off the tangent subject of American aid for Ukraine and the fact that bipartisanship is alive and well all of a sudden well i would i would recommend uh to the listeners to find on youtube the floor speech in favor of the aid package from senator ted cruz and the reason i mention that is because ted cruz is a little bit of a weather vane on these issues and you can see sort of see him balancing both sides of it and he gave a really strong uh conservative case for supporting our allies against our adversaries and why in the end that is cheaper than risking a potential war in Europe later on. And it's a very Reagan-esque, almost dare I say neoconservative, although Ted Cruz is hardly a neoconservative argument. Um, And I would say that, you know, I've I've done a little reporting because I know some people in his office that there was definitely pressure. And the way it was described to me is that a lot of Republican senators had their comms guys telling them vote against it. It's not a, it's not a winner. And they're NATSEC people saying you, sh- you have to do this because if you don't, then, you know, you're betraying, you know, not only our ally, but it's a really risky move. And 
I just want to read this quote here from Mitch McConnell, which I think really sums up at least the GOP side of it, which is that uh, he says, anyone concerned about the cost of supporting a Ukrainian victory should consider the much larger cost should Ukraine lose. And that I think really wins the day, at least in the Senate. And you're going to have uh, people like J.D. Vance, you know, in the Ohio Senate primary, certainly Rand Paul, who are going to be taking up the other side of it. But when the vote is 86 to 11 in the Senate, that tells you something. And at least for now, um, you know, the center is holding and that's a good thing. OK, I'm going to say something that I don't often say, and that is the national conservatives have a point. Hmm. Now, they usually make two arguments against uh, aid and particularly this particular package, which is a profound amount of money. $40 billion is a lot of money. And they make two arguments against it. The first is a non sequitur. It's that, you know, this fund should be better spent at home or due to inflationary pressure, not spent at all. And there's somehow a zero sum game between closing the southern border and supporting Ukraine. And we can't do both. And I don't say why we can't do both. As you say, as Mitch McConnell said in the argument that seems to have won out the day among the 50 senators, or rather, sorry, at least the 39 senators from the Republican side who voted for this, um, is that we're doing global hegemony on the cheap by right. investing $40, million, $40 billion into this conflict, which beats, black, beats, beats back a revanchist Russia for the better part of a decade and signals to other irredentist actors like China um, that they shouldn't close the South China Sea fit with a conflict with Taiwan, which would be infinitely more costly to both Americans and the global economy if that were to occur. So all this is financially beneficial. The second argument they make, which has some merit, is that there's no oversight of this incredible largesse. And American taxpayers deserve a full accounting of how their money is being spent, which is why I think it's valuable to invest in an office uh, of inspector general to oversee both Ukraine's war effort and its eventual reconstruction, because there will be abuse. There will be a uh, misuse of these funds. There will be corruption. This is not a country that's a fledgling democracy with a history of a cor corruption. We all acknowledge that. And if Lend-Lease was abused in 1941 by an advanced democracy like Great Britain, which it was and was scandalous, um, there will be abuse here. Okay, and I it serves shift. our interest I, you, to get out you, in front of that okay, before Noah, a populist latches onto it and says the government is hiding this. No, you bring up a very important point, and it's something that I've been thinking about for months, and that is a, you know, talk about, now we're going off on another tangent, but there was a story in the Washington Post earlier this week that at least $161 billion in COVID aid has vanished, that is unattributed, unaccounted for, is gone, meaning that it was somehow stolen. It, it can't, can't vanish. It's money that's in accounts and then it's taken out of accounts and then it disappears. Um, this thing, as government gets bigger and bigger and as these programs and these spent spending programs get bigger and bigger, the ability and as on the one hand, we can sort of track things because of computers and transactions and things like that. And on the other hand, the ability of people to just shave off stuff here and there and, and, and suck it in is just pretty astonishing. And there is a genuine reformist possibility here for the Republican Party if it really, really, really understands the value here, which is while all this is going on, the Republicans can also make a good government case that with all this spending... There need, there need these investigations need to take place, and not just inspector general investigations, because that's within the executive branch. We're talking about full investigative committees 
of the House and Senate. This is how Harry Truman became president of the United States. Harry Truman ran the commission that looked into the theft of military goods and services in the course of World War II. That investigation was a huge news event in 1943 and largely was the reason that grandees in the Democratic Party told the ailing Franklin Delano Roosevelt that he probably should dump Henry Wallace as his vice president and go with Harry Truman, who looked like a clean crusader. And, By the way, my, one of my favorite like side note on that story is that FDR chose Truman because when he was the senator from Missouri, he had a reputation for being part of the corrupt Pentagrass machine. And that he thought that he would he was getting a patsy. He thought he was getting somebody who would who wouldn't find any corruption and wouldn't take the job seriously. And so then when Truman actually discovers all the graft and corruption, he's like, Yeah, that's why I picked him. But of course, yeah. like the reason is because Truman was until he was president, really, or till really till this moment. I mean, I don't think Truman was Truman was part of a very corrupt system. And so FDR was kind of thinking he could yeah. kind of get away with it by picking this guy who he did who he underestimated. And he was vice president, and I think everybody underestimated him and yeah. assumed that he, and, right. you know, right up until the second term. Right, but I, I just think that you know, ambitious young Republican politicians who are yeah. not, who, who lo- are looking for a future path that is not in this now very boring binary of are you MAGA, are you not, are you Trump, right. are you not, you know, all that, can make, can cut a path by saying, we believe in government. I mean, we believe that government administered properly is important. Uh, the Democratic Party wants, believes that money is important and throwing money at things is important. And we need to make sure that the federal government doesn't become some version, which it never really was, some version of a corrupt urban machine. In, in general parlance, the federal government of the United States, with the exception of these weird moments like World War II, when more money was being spent by the federal government than had ever been spent by anybody before ever, and was just shoveling money out the door, and no one even had accounting systems to deal with this at the time. Federal government in the United States has not been a source of graft, particularly. That's not its... It, it, its system is much more basic than that. It's always been, graft has always been at the local and state levels. That's how political machines are built, How, and that has not been a problem. But, you know, here we are, and the federal well, government there, is there was spending. Well, there, was, there was graft in the, in, the, in the Lyndon B. Johnson war on poverty stuff. There was a huge no, but scandal with HUD in the down, 80s. But that stuff was sent down, in other words. yeah. Oh, I Where the draft was, was the federal government money sent to the states and then the states. We just don't know what's going on here. Right. And it is the responsibility of the Congress that that appropriates uh, this money to keep track of it. Um, and there's and nothing. So go ahead. <clears throat> there's nothing particularly nationalist about calling for accountability. Quite I the mean, opposite. In, right. I, it's not it's not internationalist. But in other words, like respectable internationalism says. We're, we're sending all this money because we want, as, as you might say in Hollywood, every dollar up on the screen. That's why we're doing it. This money is, 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 is considered because this is what it, we think it will take for us to help turn the tide or help the Ukrainians achieve the aim that we think is important. And therefore, 
you know, if 10, 20, 30% of it is wasted or stolen or whatever, we are therefore working against our own interest why we're doing it in the first place. And it's a huge political opportunity. And it would be interesting to see if Republicans can get out of their own way, stop having these pointless fight, you know, and like, this is something where you can go at a very key issue in the distinction between Republican governance and Democratic governance and Republican ideas about government and Democratic ideas about government without, you know, being stupid or like, you know, sort of gimmicky, like this is serious. And, and, and $160 billion, you know, is, is more money than, you know, than any given bill in the United States government ever was until about 1995 or 1996. No bill ever spent that kind of money. It's also a message that has more resonance during a time of bad economics. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. So let's go it's back. It's a matter of course. IG okay. is a matter of course. It, we had an IG inspector general for uh, Afghanistan reconstruction, and we're going to be throwing money at this problem for decades if we're successful. Right. Um, so, you know, the sequence of events would be rather than some some scandal bubbling up in the press and then Tucker running with it at night saying the government's trying to hide it from you. The sequence of events is it's uncovered by an IG and the IG story is what's covered on on the, you know, the, the A block. But uh, it, and that, that sh- doesn't defuse the controversy around it, but it does neutralize some of the scandal around it. But the simple fact of the matter is an, a, a, an active Congress d- using its proper oversight powers, the virtue of that as a system, as opposed to the inspector general system, is they have subpoena power. They have the power to call force the heads of agencies to come in and account for what's going on inside their agencies. That scares the agencies. Why do you think Alejandro Mayorkas paused the disinformation board? Paused the disinformation board because he got questions from Congress about it that he, this was kind of foisted on him, it appears anyway, and he didn't want to answer. He didn't want to have to talk about it. You sure he didn't want to have to deal Jack with it. Jack so Sasabek's he... Twitter account, as you said yesterday. Yeah, Jack. <laughs> right, it was, it, was, it was a few guys on Twitter. That's why he did it. According yeah. to Taylor so I'm Rex. just saying that, right. that it, if you need the Defense Department to be monitoring every cent that is going to F- going to Ukraine, they got to be scared of the Congress. They're not scared of their own Inspector General. It takes two years for an Inspector General report to come out. Or, I mean, this Inspector General report that came out that vindicates Alexander Vindman, for example, took t- two years. To oh, I don't know. Sigur was was producing reports on a semi regular basis about fraud that had occurred six months earlier. I mean, it's not. It was the turnaround time wasn't all that. It, it's not like anybody paid yeah, but, any attention yeah, to these reports. But you reports can't get regular. the new no because a House hearing is dramatic, Senate hearing is dramatic. You call somebody up, you throw things at. You know, I'm just saying like this is this is a political opportunity for the not only and it's good. It's not just a political that makes it sound cynical. Like it's actually what they should be doing with their oversight power as opposed to questioning, you know, what the racial and sexual composition is of the cadet corps at the Coast Guard Academy. You know, I mean, that which is sort of what the Democratic Senate is doing with its oversight powers over the Pentagon, according to Mike Gallagher. And and so I think we we should be you know paying very serious attention to and, this anyway. And, and also, by the way, to strengthen your point, it, it's a great way to distinguish yourself from the Democrats when 
we are living in a very partisan time. So that instead of the sort of anti-Biden administration position being, what do we what, what do we care about Ukraine? It is, you know, everybody, we, we all agree that Russia's bad and they should be defeated, but we're the party that wants sort of, sort of fiscal integrity as opposed to the party that's just willing to shove money at it and watch it get stolen. Yeah, and we care right. so much. We care so much right, that we want to exactly. make sure that that money is going where it should go. That's how much we care. Um, you know, that's 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 an important element of uh, of all of this. Um, I, anyway, okay, tangent number two off. Let's go back to what the spending that we're doing is actually for. Eli, what's your sense of this really colossal amount of money that we're 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 sending over, as Noah points out? Okay, what so, is it for? So, the, most of it is for the kinds of weapons that the Ukrainians are going to need, um, particularly not just on the battlefield. I think that there's a lot of air defense, but getting away from the military hardware, one thing that really stood out to me that I think is kind of that that's very interesting is that there is, I think, around oh sixty six. Uh, no, there's like there's like a little less than 100 million for the Justice Department to begin figuring out how to seize and sell off uh, forfeited and seized Russian assets. So part of this package is um, tipping the hand that we're, we we might actually go more go further than just freezing the bank accounts of Russian oligarchs, but actually taking their money. Um, I think that there's, we're, we're a long way from that, but that's that to me is pretty interesting. Um, it's Abe, a small and, tranche of it, though. Generally, it's as, I mean, as well. It, that, but I'm saying for the administration of it, but it signals <laughs> that the Justice Department can then right. Take it's some like sixty percent weapons, and then another five billion or so for food aid, and then another eight or nine billion for general economic reconstruction. Right. So, Abe, look, we can call this whatever you want to call it. You can call it sort of like, you know, uh, aggressive anti-Putinism, or you can call it, you know, reassertion of American seriousness or something like that. We, we look at it from a different perspective. We look at this and we say, boy, there's a lot of, as, as, um, as, as you know, there's a lot of neocon in here in the way the Republican Party, the way Mitch McConnell are, are, are talking about this. Not because it empowers the neoconservative movement, because as I constantly say, there never was, there is no such thing as a neoconservative movement. There's an intellectual tendency that hadn't that had an intellectual effect on the way people thought about the constitution of the world and how the United States should should act within it. Um, but I mean, it is ultimately th there is a there is a civilizational or a, a generational fight going on inside the right. Because that McConnell line, this struggle in Ukraine, just as the trad and natcons are kind of getting their sea legs and getting their footing and really developing a following, sort of the way the neocons did in the 1970s, um, prevailing here or succeeding here is, is the thing that will render that fat now fashionable on the right anyway this very fashionable movement uh sort of um obsolete obsolete before it really gets gets off the ground right i mean does that well is it that is it that fashionable i don't know I, I, you know when i speak to young conservatives 
This is what a lot of people say. Continetti says this also and stuff. And I, I'm talking about small rooms of kids, so I don't know. But I mean, this is where these are intellectually minded young people on the right. They are very seduced by the apocalyptic nature of the idea that, you know, the, the way that these struggles have been engaged with for the last 20 years has been unserious. They're trying to destroy our civilization from within we have to go to these extreme measures, you know, the, 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 and then, and they go very far into the, this is all the fault of the enlightenment. So that's where I, I see that's well, where the I, bells start ringing about, about why, why they're having a positive effect. Like since when do people complain about the enlightenment? Like that's, that's a new, well, but that's, that's a, a new so wrinkle. It's, it's an intellectual fashion, which is to say it right. probably barely penetrates among conservatives who actually are out there in the world living right their but, lives. That, but my point is that you know intellectuals the the classic thing you know it's that the 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 Keynes line that leaders you know leaders on earth uh who think that they're making giant decisions are actually are actually largely the slaves of some defunct economist like uh an intellectual tendency like neoconservatism can have a wildly outsized effect because it spreads people a lot of people find it interesting and think it describes the world appropriately. They grow up, they go into the government, they take those ideas with them. And if it does appear as though that is, that is a, as I say, a sort of description of how the world works and how to, and how to function within it, they will be taking those lessons and applying them. And that's where the trad cons and, and nat cons and all of that are at this moment. That's why I compared it to the neocons in the seventies, they could be generating a new, cohort of leaders who will bring these ideas to bear you know in coming decades unless those so, ideas are seen to be either irrelevant or wrongheaded among you know the many remarkable things about the russian forces sort of semi-collapse um is that they've done putin has done the natcons a tremendous disfavor um they needed putin to be tough they needed russia to to wage a much more formidable campaign to say look what look look, look what's going on here we're getting into this giant thing we're all going to die it's going to blow the fact that we actually that the ukrainians have putin on the ropes um has sort of swung you know everyone around to all right let let's let's finish this off you know uh, I mean, it, it no, makes that's... it makes it seem a, a much less uh, formidable sort of undertaking see no i think that's an important point because i don't want to sort of tag the natcons and the tradcons with being you know pro-putin per se but they've implicitly embraced the idea that these non-liberal or anti-liberal leaders outside the united states orban putin even g to some extent where you know a whole bunch of people um that the point about them is that they have strength and power and force because they have rejected present day liberal nostrums. They believe in strength. They believe in manliness. They believe in Christianity. They believe in, you know, they, they, they aren't, they aren't, they aren't intimidated by the idea by wokeness or something like that. But of course they also then have to be good at it. Like it's not enough to sort of embrace these ideas. The whole point is that Putin's supposed to be, 
better at being a leader than Western leaders are, right? He, he's better at it. He, people support him. His country is, knows where it is and where it's going. Um, it's the kind of thing that even Trump said about him. I like him. He's, you know, he knows, he knows his mind. He knows what he's doing. And he's, uh, you know, he's good at it. And of course, what we see here is that he may be catastrophically bad at it. And but, but which also means <clears throat> I mean, my point is that which also means that the prospects of, of our, you know, getting entangled here seem less treacherous. Yeah, possibly. I mean, all the arguments in favor on the, you know, on the right and particularly in like CPAC, which we opened up with, um, you know, that sort of advanced these ideas about Putin were insane to begin with. I mean, the idea that he was somehow natalist, you know, Russia has a shrinking population, that he was somehow a champion of Christianity. He's done nothing but shackle the Orthodox Church in Russia and so on and so forth. These were all rationalizations and the, toward what end and what end is to run down America. They don't give a shit about Russia or Orban or Europe or any of that nonsense. They care about running down present day America and any proxy that helps them do that will become, a, 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 you know, they're the latest hero and they're plenty running up behind, you know, Putin and Orban when they fail or to meet the expectations that they need, who will serve that role. I, I don't think Can we're, I, oh, go ahead, Eli, sorry. Well, I, I, it seems that there's a, there's a contradiction in the TradCon kind of argument or their politics, because on the one hand, their complaint seems to be that there are these rules that we all seem to agree on in our liberal democracy and the left doesn't play by those rules and they never pay a consequence. And the right is too polite and too bound by these kinds of high ideals to counter them or to give them a taste of their own medicine. But in that sense, they, I mean- The argument is against rule of law. Well, it's not a, so much about rule of law. I'm saying that it, it's on the one hand, you have the Tradcons kind of leading the charge saying, yes, Elon Musk, please buy Twitter because we believe in free speech. That's an enlightenment value. Um, or for example, they were very, very upset about the treatment of Trump people during Russiagate because it was a violation of due process and an abuse of prosecutorial authority and investigative authority. Another traditional small L liberal idea. So when they say, screw it, we need a king or screw it. Like, you know, I like these strongmen because they really stick it to the liberals. What they, what maybe what some of them at least are saying is, you know, the left has, has abandoned liberalism. So what's the argument for us to continue to kind of play by those rules and keep losing? That is different than a kind of affirmative or positive argument about the virtues of authoritarianism or something like that. Okay, well, that's an important. Of an, all, of these, all of these things that are being said are all complementary. Right. There is no, the, when, when, when an intellectual tendency is, is gathering steam, it will have various faces, right? So right. one of them is I'm sick of these liberals setting rules and breaking them and it's not fair. And, I, you know, and I- By the way, I tying, agree with them on that. Right. That, that we're part tying our hands behind our back. Yeah. And- uh, Noah's point, which is they've also turned against the United States. They don't yes. like the United States anymore. They think that it's we're 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 morally diseased and stained uh, in a thousand different ways. And forces in the world that seek that that are that are ideologically opposed to us that aren't to the left of the left of the United States 
are very attractive to them as a result, as a kind of criticism of the United States. And then there's my concern, my, my, my line, which is that they also then, it's not only that they're interested in them, but as was true of radicals on the left in the 1970s and 60s, they want something to believe in. They don't just want to be negative. They want something positive to believe in. And that's where this Orban worship comes in. Listen, I would love to love Orban. Orban, I mean, I, it's a weird thing to say now, because, but, you know, Orban basically said in the late 80s, early 90s, that it was like Sama's dot commentary, that the commentary magazine issues that he read that helped form his you know political views before he kept moving, you know, on and on and on to the right. I would love to, you know, I would love that, you know, he's like a early fan of commentary that would, I would love <laughs> to claim him, but I can't, but they want him and they wanted Putin. I mean, a lot of them wanted Putin and they can't have him. And so, you know, and, and so they are part of the rear guard action against Ukraine aid is some weird defense of Putin on their part. It's like, we're putting our finger on the scale against Putin, but you know, Putin has our agenda on homosexual issues. And so if we do this, this is just gonna set us back on these matters. And that, that is why this conflict is more, this conflict or this sort of the weird gathering anti-Ukrainianism um, is pretty important to counteract. Because this is the one real world test where there's where it said, okay, look, here's where the government so this country has invaded, this other country is trying to take it over. That other country is sort of aligned with us. This the country that's trying to take it over isn't. And they're like, well, it should be. We should be, we should have them. They should we should be on Russia's side. And um, where are you gonna go here? You think that's okay? You think it's okay for one country to swallow up another country? John, isn't this some of this can just be explained by the fact that if Nicole Wallace says that Ukraine is the most important thing in the world, then I'm for Russia. Like some of it is just letting your adversaries do your thinking for you. They had four years of Russia, 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 Russia from the Democrats. And I think some of that just turned a lot of people into like, well, you know what, if, if they hate Russia so much, and these are the same people who want to make my kids transgender, then I love Russia. And that's right. not a good intellectual argument, but I think it does explain some of this fake. But no, another, I think you're absolutely right. Another yeah, part of this, yeah, though, is that, yeah. you know, the, the NatCons say, well, Putin is sort of with us on the gay issues. And therefore, yeah. that makes him a strong and serious leader, unlike the U.S. And we're getting this real world demonstration uh, in how, in fact, there's no, there's no connection uh, between being, you know, some sort of like, you know, uh, social issue hard ass and uh, being able to wage a war. And that's kind right. of what Eli's point is, I think, is that if there is this intellectual tendency among a very narrow class of people on the nationalist right who actually have a coherent ideological you know, tendency here that they can actually articulate, the, the movement that they think they're commanding is motivated entirely by negative partisanship. Yeah, which will disappear as fast as that partisanship disappears. So that's uh, its core, is what you're saying. So, so they are, they are. I mean, the JD Vance candidacy, Josh Hawley's turn, various other aspects of this, where people 
you know, who are intellectually minded on the right, but politically involved, you know, J.D. Vance was writing for David Frum's website. That's where he emerged from. Josh Hawley, you know, wrote a doctoral dissertation at Stanford that his professor, the neoliberal Paul Kennedy said was one of the most brilliant doctoral dissertations. I can't remember the something in American history. I can't remember what the subject was precisely. Josh Hawley is now downshifted into this. So you, you have to look at that and say, there is clearly something intellectually appealing about this. It's not just negative partisanship, or it's not just, I hate liberals. It is, I want to create a coherent anti-liberal, anti current American culture worldview. I want to, I want to create it. I want to believe in it and I want to lead it. And they're, they're, they're not that many in number, but you know, the neocons had one politician or two, you know, it's Jackson and Pat Moynihan, Pat Moynihan betrayed the cause, like decided he needed to stay in good with people further to the left in the, in the democratic party than he was and to save his seat. And so he moved to the left. Scoop Jackson didn't. But I mean, it was not a polit- it was very much not a political movement. These guys have a little bit of politics. They have a little bit of mass support because of the negative partisanship and hating things. But as we said, you know, in these numbers, as we talked about this in relation to Fox and stuff like that. So let's say the Fox audience is really the meat, the heart, the marrow of this you know, potential where they want to draw from, right? 20 years ago, the Fox audience was rah, rah, let's go and destroy radical Islam, you know, put on your, put on your, where's your flag? Don't eat French fries, call them freedom fries, you know, go to war, enlist, you know, you're all heroes. Here we are 20 years later and, you know, at least half the lineup of the Fox, you know, uh, primetime is now essentially moved toward turned against American, the idea that America can do good in the world outside of our, and to protect ourselves. But it's still only a couple million people. But a couple of million people are a lot, you know? I mean, Commentaries is a magazine that changed the world at its high watermark. It had about 45,000 subscribers. Changed the world. Changed, had an enormous effect on whether or not the SALT II Treaty was going to get passed, which it wasn't had a great effect on, you know, creating the environment of a capacious effort to face down the Soviet Union everywhere. But, you know, nobody read it. I mean, tiny number of people read it. Movements can have outsized effects. But the Ukraine is a weird moment because it actually, it is a rubber meet the road moment, which is if you're J.D. Vance and you come into the Senate next year and there's a new bill supplemental for Ukraine, because things are still going on and Ukraine needs more anti-aircraft missiles or, you know, whatever it needs. Are you going to vote for it? Or are you going to vote against it? Are you going to try to make your stand as this? No, we're not doing this anymore. Or are you going to say, you know what? These ideas kind of got me here, but we also have to live in the real world and there are real world. I was in the military. I'm JD Vance. I was in the military. I can see the virtual military action. It's working. It's just interesting. Like that, that we're at a tip where we're, these next two, three, four years are going to establish where the Republic party go, where the Republican party goes on foreign policy. 
And I think for all of us, Eli, tell me if you agree. I mean, I think we were all flabbergasted at how interventionist and frankly, neocon the Republican response to Ukraine was from the jump, from the get go. I thought we had, I thought this fight, not that it was lost, but that people were going to be much more hesitant and much more attracted to the NatCon argument that we should just stay out of this. And what's our, what's the point? So a couple points on that. I think when this thing started and they build up and the e- on the eve of it, there was a political calculation where people thought that Ukraine was going to get wiped out. And then there was a very easy political hit, which is I want to position myself on the side of saying we could have prevented this. And it's Biden, another Biden failure, um, just like Afghanistan. Um, and even, the, I mean, if you go back to some of the Afghanistan stuff, even the, the MAGA think tank that, you know, had sort of was originally supportive of the withdrawal and even Trump himself ended up saying, well, you know, you screwed this up so badly. What a terrible embarrassment. And that was the thing, I think, the thinking on the eve of the war. When everyone was surprised at how well the Ukrainians did, that's when I was somewhat surprised because I think some some clever politicians could have positioned themselves and say, it's going to be a really long conflict and it's going to be very expensive and there's all kinds of other things that we can't predict and we might get sucked into it. And I want to be the one to say in two years when I'm running for re-election that I was against it. But they'd already kind of taken that shot and now they're kind of in for a penny and in for a pound. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's this doesn't have to be this either or. This is not... Uh, uh, this is not a resolution to to send American forces to fight Russia, which is a distinction from sending a lot of weapons to a country that is in the middle of a war to do so. And even though they're both forms of intervention, it's pretty easy to say, well, you know, I'm against sending U.S. forces, but I'm for helping the Ukrainians with everything else we can do. And that's not the same as sort of I'm getting us into another endless war. So I think it became a little bit easier for someone like a Joni Ernst or something like that, who could, or Ted Cruz, people who could maybe be go either way to, to come on the side of intervention. And that's why we saw that 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 vote uh, on the Ukraine aid package. But Republicans, even those with nationalist populistic tendencies, or at least understand that's where the bread is buttered, aren't committed to that intellectual quasi-isolationism either, and weren't in the Trump years, in part, Eli, because of your very good point. What were the two most, in, you know, rallying moments during the Trump administration strikes on Syria and Soleimani in Iraq, right? That there was almost very little opposition. That was a commitment of direct military uh, engagement by U.S. forces. Well, Tucker opposed the Soleimani stuff. And he opposed the Syria strike. I went on on camera with him and had a big argument in favor of the Trump position of attacking Syria's uh, chemical weapons facilities, in part, Eli, because of your very good point, because they served for a domestic audience that doesn't know foreign policy and doesn't care about foreign policy as an opportunity to bash Barack Obama. Right. Um, That was one part of it. Another part of it is these are American adversaries. It's in the U.S. DNA to oppose uh, these regimes. And it's particularly part of the Republican identity uh, to oppose and curtail their capacity to, um, to upset and interrupt uh, Western uh, objectives and frustrate American interests and actually attack American interests and attack American soldiers. Uh, striking back against that, even in the name of humanitarian intervention in the Syria case, was supported broadly by the Republican uh, firmament and the conservative firmament. 
the nationalist tendency has always been on the outs. I don't remember when they've had the upper hand on a foreign policy argument. They, they have it much above their weight. They sure. haven't yet. First of all, to be fair, the, this nationalist tendency that we're talking about, uh, to the extent that it's a, you really can't compare it to Buchananism because it, it it's kind of an out, it's an outgrowth of the generation after Pat Buchanan. But um, my the, the point I was trying to make is that it is coalescing now. There are thinkers, there's energy, there are politicians, there are think tanks, there are meetings of CPAC in Budapest. There, there is a there is an energy there, and there is a real world conflict that is going to determine, in my view, whether this movement takes off or basically withers away because its priors and its presumption, which is that the United States cannot do good, that people who align themselves with the with the postmodern West are bound to be failures at best or morally suspect or compromised at worst. And that, um, and that we need to stay home and tend our garden and surrender all control of politics on the right to them and See, let when, them handle it now. When, and, when, yeah. when there's a foreign policy crisis, it's when the, the NatCon stuff stops being cosplay. Um, or for some, it's it's where you're. It's where you decide if you're really in or or not. It's easy to sit around and theorize about how wrongheaded America is and how weak and how there's we couldn't even you know uh, uh, put down goat herders in Afghanistan, so we're finished on the world stage. When things are relatively peaceful, you know, um, then something some conflagration or uh, someone does something to some American troops somewhere. And the idea is like, really, we're not going to we're not going to strike back on the on the guys who hit us or the, or the ones who could hit us next. Um, and this and this has been a great source of frustration to the NATCOMs. You see them sort of complaining about the people who have dropped off from the movement once once Russia invaded Ukraine and they sort of signed on to an, an actual uh, policy of, of American involvement. Look, I think the open question gets to this. The NACONs believe that the United States is either, you know, like is flight is is crashing into the ground like Flight 93, or is on the way, but that has spent 20 years doing everything wrong and has lost its not only its moral compass, but its claim to moral, uh, I don't know, leadership. And when the left took this turn in the 1960s, it, except for its own, you know, entropic control of certain institutions, it, it plunged into, it went into the wilderness for 15, for almost two decades. It's funny, you think about uh, 20, uh, 50 years ago, 1972, Richard Nixon did not have a success, was not having a particularly successful presidency. He'd instituted wage and price controls. He was presiding over a conflict in Vietnam that was well, wage increased. and price controls were very popular. No. Well, they were that was like they were popular for a while. They were not popular. Down through 72. They were not popular. People who people who were forbidden wage and price controls was a very extreme measure. 
and it was supposed to in the end anyway didn't do what it was supposed to which was kill inflation but um no but nixon was not having a particularly not wildly successful presidency he ended up winning 62 percent of the vote in 1972 because the democratic party went insane sided with criminals it sided with bombers it sided with the viet effectively it seemed to be siding with the with the viet cong and the north vietnamese and it nominated somebody who said we're done come home we're just going to come home and lick our wounds and you know just take care of ourselves because we're, we're no good anymore and the american people were repulsed by this and the open question i think that ukraine raises and some of these other things raises that argument didn't work, but it was only, you know, it was only a couple decades after, through three decades after World War II, 25 years after World War II, when we had saved the world and the people who had fought there didn't like hearing this and their children didn't like hearing it. And the people who, who had family fighting in Vietnam didn't like hearing it. And they turned in revulsion against the Democratic Party, which effectively, except for the weirdness of 1976, never got hold of the national political conversation until 1993. Um, that's where this question of where the trad cons and the nat cons and the Republican Party's direction is, which is, are the American people actually now, or a large swath of Republicans, let's just say, not the American people, willing to hear that we stink? But we stink. I, we're, yeah. Isn't there another way, which is that the trad cons could look at this and say, Yikes, uh, we, we leaned a little too hard into Russia on this one or Putin. But we think the Republican Party and lots of Americans are still with us on immigration and on trade and on the rot and takeover of the hard left of these important cultural, social and government institutions. And that's really where we're gonna focus. And on this foreign policy stuff, we're just not gonna emphasize it as much. And we got a little too far down the road, you know, we're not going to have Budapest CPAC anymore, but, but on this stuff, they kind of like, you know, I mean, the party, is I don't very think they different. get to claim, they don't get to claim the parents revolt. They don't no, get to I'm claim not saying the revolt the against, Fair no, enough. but I'm just saying, I don't, don't yeah. think I, I, I we are only talking about foreign policy and I'm not saying yeah. that what, what you're saying okay. doesn't have purchase, but you know, the uh, revolt against open borders it wildly predates the sure, rise of the Tradcons and the Natcons. The, I'll ask if you're talking about who's been fighting for 40 years about the about the rot and takeover of the universities. Traditional conservatives. Fair enough. Fair I enough. mean, they're all they're all Johnny yeah. Come Latelys to this. Like, well, well they're, they're Johnny welcome, Come Latelys, but, to it. but the critique I think might be, and I'm I'm saying this as somebody yeah. who's on your side, yeah, is that. Yeah, for 40 years, the traditional conservatives have been complaining about this, but what good has it done? We're the ones who are capable because we're willing to be impolite. We're willing to, we're willing to get, we're willing to trigger the libs in a way that these kind of respectable, intelligent conservatives really aren't. And that's why you got to be with us because we agree, you know, these universities are hopeless and we got to do something about it. And, you know, I mean, I think that there is something there, especially on trade issues, especially on the fact that the Republicans are becoming more of a well, working class party. OK, but I want to talk about trade issues for a minute, yeah. because this is another part of the Tradcon social whatever uh, world that is kind of weirdly contradictory. So on the other yeah. hand, they want us to look at China as a economic adversary. Yes. Right. And on the other hand, they kind of like China. And it's, it's a weird way, the same way they kind of like Putin. Like, 
she knows that's what he's a, doing. I'm, that's a real narrow cast of people who are very deeply intellectually committed to this movement. The vast majority of the, of the nationalist right rank and file in so far as they exist wants to pivot to Asia, commit entirely to containing Asian and uh, Chinese uh, revanchism. I think it's like Patton. It's like George C. Scott in the movie Patton talking about Rommel, right? Remember he says, Rommel, you magnificent bastard. I mean, that's what they think of Xi. Xi yeah. didn't write a book. Rommel? No, Rommel. The, the other line is that I read your book. And I read, read your you book. Read Rommel's tank warfare book, and that's where they got him at Kesselrian. I know, but, the, but my point is that they kind of like Xi. They think there's a reason that China owns the future. China owns the future because it's anti-liberal. I mean, that's it's anti-liberal and he, he doesn't put up with any of this guff. And even though he's committing genocide against Christians, and even though they want to be in a trade war with him, they kind of like him. And so here's the next uh, one to to bottom out, by the way, the Chinese authoritarianism, their, their, their zero COVID policy is a weakening the regime visibly and B truncating their economic growth to the point where China's per capita GDP is no longer outpacing America's for the first time since 1976. Yeah. Right. So this is, but that's what, you know, the links to my point about Russia. It's like their whole argument, the NatCons is like, we're, we're, we're on the side of winners, you know, on uh, serious people who yeah. don't fetishize these trendy frivolities, uh, who people who understand statecraft and sacrifice and what, what it means to be hard. And none of that is bearing out. Right. Well, that's important because you of love course, to see it. Yeah, you love to see it. But, it, you know, it did, uh, until the rubber met the road and there were two two things that met the road here. Right. There was covid and China's behavior on covid, not just externally in relation to how it handled and you know has lied about it and is making it impossible for us to determine the source and all of that stuff, but also its own internal handling of the matter which reveals the kind of incredible sick weakness of, of totalitarian regimes and the accountability systems that they can't build. And now the fact that they are essentially destroying their own economy in a panic, probably because things there are way worse than anybody has ever, has ever acknowledged. Um, you know, we remain the case that, you know, you look at the headlines today and it's like the Americans, a million Americans died in COVID the worst uh, recorded COVID death number on the planet. Do we really think that China hasn't had more dead than the United States with four to five times our population when it broke out there first? We don't know. We don't understand what the hell is going on here. But if, we, if we're still we're still like credulously accepting Chinese numbers when we see the hysteria that is broken out here, that they are they're trapping 75 million urban people in their homes where they can't go out and get food. I mean, this it's is significant very... that they can't censor the videos that we're now seeing in the West of regular citizens yelling at various government officials. Right. But I mean, I think this is where yeah. the cosplay point that Abe, that you made is yeah. so important, which is that in the absence of pushback, in the absence of a world in which they're pri- which these regimes are actually genuinely tested, Maybe you can make the Tom Friedman cab driver argument that, you know, China really knows what it's doing because it knows how to build an airport. Wow. 
That's real. I'm sure the airports are going to be in great shape in 15 years when there are cracks in every visible surface and, you know, the runways collapse. But nonetheless, it's really great. They have great airports and they have, you know, it's amazing. And they really know what there's some there's something to be said for this kind of uh, demand system, command system. And then the rubber meets the road and they actually have to run things in a crisis. And that's the same thing with obviously with Russia. Uh, and 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 its claims of its own dynamism and the idea that it's this dynamic force that is really, you know, has the upper hand because Putin is willing to do what it takes to be the kind of person that, you know, th- th- Trump thought, you know, Trump thought, oh, who's, he really is one of those guys. He'll do what it takes. I admire that. I admire that. He's tough. He's really tough. And there he is, you know having made what right now looks like one of the greatest blunders in human history, right? This invasion of Ukraine, if it goes on this way, will have been, you know, almost yeah. almost unthinkably historically, I don't even know if there's anything that c- quite compare to it. Also, re- really great move by China to like sign that uh, alliance with Russia on the eve of this disastrous invasion, yeah. like... Yeah, these guys really know how to play this game. <laughs> okay, so I've done this wrong because I got to talk to you about Bolin Branch and we're right at the end of the podcast. So, you know, you have a whole all weekend now to think about those soft 100% organic cotton threads, the best on earth with the superior softness and better night's sleep, these buttery, breathable, and possibly soft sheets that get softer with every wash, okay? Forget thread count. Bolin Branch gives you thread quality. Highest quality threads on earth. Sheets made with threads so luxurious they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. Buttery to the touch, super breathable. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, which come in nine neutral colors in all sizes, from twin up to California king, 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. And they fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bowen Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And let us not forget that if we're talking about the con- con- the competition between uh, our uh, our regime and and these unfree regimes uh, of, relative in, of relative unfreeness uh, in Russia and in China, uh, that uh, one of the things that we focus on here is the question of how a free market and the free economy uh, works and why, why uh, it has created this uh, amazing 200-year experiment in the United States uh, for freedom and human flourishing and how that is so challenged in Russia and China and to find out why and how and how that all works, get David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. David runs the Bonson group, which has three and a half billion dollars under management. So there's a lot of people who think he knows what he's talking about. His performance uh, on that fund is amazing. And he has basically tried to synthesize almost all major economic ideas in easily digestible single page. It's like a page a day study of, uh, of the interplay of, of economics, public policy, theology, um, and, uh, and philosophy. That's David Bonson's. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you get your books. 
do it today. So uh, we got to go, but is there anything that we have forgotten to Can mention? I just make a quick, uh, yes, my podcast. It's called the Please talk about your podcast. Yeah, it's we've got nine episodes up now. The latest one is all about Russiagate. Uh, it's called the Reeducation. Uh, the format's a little different. I do um, usually a 10 to 15 minute kind of monologue with clips. And then I have a in-depth discussion with someone. John Pedaritz was my second guest. He We talked about ne- the neoconservatives. Uh, Christine Rosen was my guest uh, for the episode on disinformation. I will be having Abe and Noah on in the in the near future. And um, I really think it's a great podcast. I think it keeps getting better. I would love for the commentary listeners to subscribe and give me the five stars and all that stuff. So again, the name of the podcast is called The Reeducation. The Reeducation with Eli Lake. So go subscribe. Yes, please. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. We're on all of it. All of it. Spotify. Spotify. You name it. Yeah. We, we'll we only back. need like like two million more subscribers to catch up with Joe Rogan. <laughs> so I need I, I need you to, to help me out here. <laughs> well, I, take out your take out your doobie, man. Yeah. Take out your doobie and get some get yeah. some uh, five hours intellectual dark webers to sit with, with you for five Thiel hours. And, yeah, and Elon exactly. Musk. Yeah. Okay, so that's the reeducation with Eli Lake. Yes. Commentary podcast will of course be back on Monday. So for Abe. The absent Christine and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.